Hey everybody, I'm here in my daughter Tessa's bedroom. Tessa is our youngest daughter, and uh, this is where she sleeps. This is where she has her toys, like Olaf. This is where she feels secure. This is where she feels safe. Most of the time. Not all the time. Uh, you know, sometimes she gets in trouble and she has to come here for timeout. And when we send her here for timeout, she doesn't like it. In fact, she gets so angry, she screams at the top of her lungs like, No! No! And she keeps screaming over and over and over. I mean, like psycho screaming. And we tell her, you ain't coming out until you stop screaming. Uh, we know she's angry, uh, but she also feels a little bit of shame. Like she doesn't feel like she belongs, like she's, she's gotten our disapproval. Like, like we are now condemning her as a person. And, and so what she tends to do is she tries to blame. She tries to say, well, my sister started it. Or, or, or she'll do the whole like, uh, I said I'm sorry. I said I'm sorry, geez. And we're like, it doesn't sound like you're very sorry. Right? She tries to diminish what she did. She tries to excuse it because... She associates being guilty of wrongdoing with shame and not belonging and meeting our disapproval. And so after a few minutes, we come up here and we try to talk to her and we try to get her to, on one hand, admit her wrongdoing, admit she's guilty of something here, but also try to convince her that, but sweetie, we still love you and you still belong in our family and nothing's going to ever change that. It's very hard for her to admit her guilt and yet not feel shame or condemned for that guilt. We are starting a new series, it's going to be just three weeks for the rest of September, called No Condemnation. It's a three-week study on Romans 8 verse 1, where it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. What does it mean? What does it mean for us to no longer be under condemnation for guilt that we are, that's legitimate, that we're guilty of? Uh, how do we own our guilt and yet not feel condemned? And is it only for those in Christ Jesus? What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Why Christ Jesus? Why the exclusivity? And why, perhaps most importantly, do those who actually profess to be Christians and are in Christ Jesus, why do we still live oftentimes like we are still under condemnation? Why don't we fully believe that? Why do we try to assuage our guilty feelings by blaming others, diminishing, comparing ourselves to other people, trying to prove ourselves? Why do we still sometimes wonder when we go through hard times if this is God punishing us? How can we uh, listen to constructive criticism from other people and, 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 and actually admit, yeah, I got some areas of growth that I, need to, that I need to own, while at the same time not feeling shame for those areas of growth and not wondering if God is no longer approving us, of us because of those areas of growth. These are some things we're going to tackle over these three weeks. I hope that you lean into this. I hope that you invite somebody to this. And I hope that God really speaks to you over these next three weeks. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Let's pray before we move forward here. God, you want, I believe you want, the same thing I want as a father for my daughter Tessa, the freedom to be able to admit our guilt and yet not feel shame, not feel like we don't belong, but actually live in the freedom that you offer us in Christ Jesus where there is no condemnation for our guilt. That's what I ask for over these next three weeks, that those who are not in Christ Jesus would be brought into and under Christ Jesus, and for those who are in Christ Jesus would live more fully in that freedom, would live like they are no longer under condemnation would think and act and respond to difficulties as if they are truly no longer under condemnation. It's in your name that I pray. It's in Jesus' name that I can pray these things. And we're going to talk about what that even means, Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, good morning again. 
Uh, so uh, a couple years ago, a friend of mine who's not a Christian heard something on the radio. He, he heard uh, somebody talk about how um, Christianity, because it believes that uh, one of the tenets of Christianity is that we're born sinners and that in our natural state, we're sinners, we're broken, we're, 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 uh, we're not, we don't just do sin like verbs where we are sinners he said uh, that this person on the radio was talking about how that leads to self uh, low self-esteem and he was like you know what do you say about that and my response was actually it's quite the opposite it actually leads to a freedom from low self-esteem uh, and my hope today is to um, drive home that point explain why that is the definition of condemnation if you look it up uh, the noun the expression of very strong disapproval censure the action of condemning someone to a punishment, sentencing. And yes, Christianity does in fact teach that in our natural state, we are condemned. We stand under the sentence of condemnation. There is a guilty, uh, we are guilty and there is a sentence uh, of punishment for that guilt that we are under. And I know a lot of people don't like to talk about that. Uh, and a lot, a lot of people who are even Christians don't like to like. Let's not let's put that on the let's let's put that over here. Let's not talk to focus too much on that. We don't like to talk about guilt, let alone condemnation. Um, but take it out of this God realm for a moment um, and think about with me. Consider h- how often we condemn things that we see as wrong out there in the world. Think about that. Think about how you and I have in our souls a justice button, and that justice button causes us to condemn things that we see out there in the world as wrong. We say, that's wrong, and it shouldn't be like that, and that should be dealt with, right? We draw a line in the sand, and we condemn that which falls on the other side of that line. Oftentimes, think about the stuff going on in our world, in our country right now. There's a lot of people out there condemning, and rightfully so, racial injustice or racial inequality or or, or racial tensions, and wondering, why aren't more people condemning that? There's a lot of people condemning the looting and the violence in response to that and saying, well, why aren't more people condemning that looting and that violence? There's people who are saying, I'm, you know, condemning the hypocrisy over uh, that, are, that, that they're seeing inside of uh, the Republican Party. Why aren't more people seeing this? Why aren't more people condemning this? And then there's people condemning what they see as hypocrisy in the Democratic Party and saying, why aren't more people condemning that? Right? Am, 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 I, am, I, am I creating some tension in your soul right now by even saying these things, right? Because you see things out there and you say, that should be condemned. Why aren't more people seeing things the way I see things? But what about the un- unborn babies who are being tossed aside, disregarded? More people should be condemning that, right? It happens every day we see things that should be condemned in our minds and we wonder, why aren't more people condemning that with me? And we condemn those people who aren't condemning that, don't we? Consider how when, when, when we see somebody who's guilty of a crime and it's so clear they're guilty of a crime and they're standing in court with a smug look on their face showing no remorse, show, like, just like they don't care, then we're like, how could they do that? We, we want them to show remorse. We want them to feel the weight of their guilt. If I committed a murder and I was uh, in court, you'd want me to feel it. You'd want me to show remorse. You'd want me to be broken over that and go, I, I'm so sorry. I wish I could take it back. That's what you want to see, especially if you were the parents of the person who I killed. You want to see remorse. You want to see me broken. So so let's let's be honest and let's be clear that the idea of condemning that which is guilty is something that we all believe in. Right, we we all do believe in condemning that which is legitimately wrong, unjust, evil, sinful. Scripture just takes it a step further and says, "Well, we all stand condemned before a holy God." In fact, a few verses before, or a few chapters prior to Romans eight verse one, it says this in Romans three: "There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for." All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God has a glory. God has a weight. There's a standard to God's holiness that we don't measure up to. All of us, we don't measure up to it. The word glory has to do with weight. So it's like the the glory of God's holiness, the weight of God's holiness, uh, picture it on a scale. It just tips that scale. And you and I, 
as good as we might be in certain days, we, you, could, you could toss a few of us on the other side of that scale, the best of us, the most saintly of us, on our best days, and we don't even touch it. We, we don't even tip the scale at all. We fall short of God's glory. And, 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 and we know this. I think that there is something in our souls, all of us, human nature, that, that testifies to the reality that we don't measure up. There is something in our souls, whether we are going to acknowledge it or not, admit it or not, that tells us you are not what you should be before a holy God. You don't measure up. You fall short of his glorious standard. You don't do what you ought to do. You don't think the way you ought to think. In fact, in Romans 7, the passage right before, I'm going to show it to you in a moment, in the passage right before our anchor text, so Romans 8.1 is our primary verse, the passage leading right up to that, Paul is expressing this sentiment where he feels like, man, I am not what I know I ought to be. Let's check it out. Romans 7. I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner. Think of that word prisoner, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Does that not sound, does that not feel familiar to us if we were honest with ourselves. We don't do what we ought to do most of the time. We don't think the way we ought to think even more often. We don't have the attitude that we should have, right? And we know this. We know this, but here's how we often try to respond to that. We try to assuage that guilty feeling. We, we try to wash away that shame, that remorse that we feel uh, by basically doing what my daughter Tessa does, diminishing running, blaming, comparing. Sometimes we just deny the existence of God. Let me try to find an argument to deny the existence of God. Then I can, then I can quiet my soul. Shh, I don't have to listen to you because I don't have to think about God's standard of holiness. Or, or we play the religious game. We jump right into religion, don't we? If, if I can do a lot of things, then I can compare myself to the next guy who isn't doing those things? I mean, look at look at look at Joe over there. He's not even going to church, so I'm better than him. I'm a volunteer at church. I volunteer in our kids ministry, uh, or, or or we look at our neighbor who's got cars parked outside his house, coming in and out every you know all hours of the night. You know, we assume it must be running drugs out of there. Well, I'm doing better than that. So God must look at me and think that uh, you know I'm 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 measuring up. I'm doing well. I'm not under condemnation. I'm not guilty. I make mistakes here and there. But again, going back to the uh, the the analogy of if I if I committed a murder, none of us would want me to respond to that by saying, you know, nobody's perfect. Gosh, we all we all make mistakes. Come on, you're not going to condemn me for that, are you? You'd be like. No, you're, you should be condemned. A, a, a just system would condemn that as murder and say, yeah, we all make mistakes, but murder, you, you go to prison for that. And there's a sentence that you have to pay for that crime. Same idea before a holy God. All the hiding, all the running, all the comparison, none of it can deal with the guilt that we should feel. We should feel that guilt. Even when people say, I'm a really good person. Sometimes I hear people say that, but I'm a really good person. Like they know they screwed up and they respond by saying, but I'm a really good person. I don't hear a person bragging. I don't hear a person being arrogant. I hear a pathetic attempt to assuage a guilty feeling and to wash away shame. I know I made a mistake, but please, that's not who I am. Please don't define me by that. I really am a good person. And I call it pathetic, not because the person's pathetic, but because all our attempts to deal with our guilt is pathetic. It doesn't do it. It can't solve it. There's only one solution to our guilt and to deal with the condemnation that we are under for that guilt. To explain it, I want you to see a video about my dog, Sheila, who passed away two years ago. 
Um, but um, a video popped up on my Facebook feed recently. This video was from 2011, but I want to. I want you. I want you to see it. Take a take a look at it. Dirty Sheila, rolling in the mud. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> what happened to her? What did you do? Sheila, what did you do? <laughs> you are a dirty dog. Baby, rinse her off. So that was my dog, Sheila. She loved to jump in puddles. Uh, so she comes home muddy. My wife loved Sheila. But listen, listen, listen. Very important. She would not let Sheila into her house without being cleaned up. She loved Sheila, but Sheila could not come into the presence of a holy Jess, right, with all that mud all over her. She loved her. But Sheila was not worthy. She did not measure up to the cleanliness, the standard of cleanliness that Jess had for our house and our home. And there was nothing Sheila could do on her own to deal with that. Sheila could not clean herself up. Sheila could not wash the mud off. Nor could Sheila say to my wife, even if she could speak, she couldn't say, well, I'm not as dirty as the dog down the street who's even more muddy than I am. She couldn't do that. Just still wouldn't let. Just wouldn't be like, oh, well, that's true. You aren't as muddy as Felix down the street. So no, her muddy state was not enough. Uh, was not clean enough. Kept her from the presence of Jess and kept her from being able to go into our house. And the same idea with us. We stand before a holy God. We're muddy. We're dirty. God loves us. But He's like, I can't let you in my family. I can't let you in my kingdom. I can't let you into my presence like that you gotta clean you gotta get cleaned up and we can't do it we can't clean ourselves up not with religious activity not by comparing ourselves to other people not by saying well god don't look at me look at that guy over there he's really bad so you can let me in right none of that works there's only one solution just like sheila had to be cleaned up by someone outside of herself namely me I had to step into her mess. I had to step into her dirt. I had to step into her mud. I had to get all her mud all over me in the process of washing her off. That's what God did for us by sending his own son, Jesus. Look at how Romans 8 continues. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because it's through Christ Jesus that the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What's that mean? For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, the law, listen, the law was powerless to fix us because it was weakened by the flesh. What does that mean? Let me just stop there for a moment. What does that mean? The law could only show us how we should live and the standard God has for us. It could not give us the power to actually live up to that law. Uh, like an MRI. An MRI will show you, hey, this is this, this this gray spot over here, that's abnormal. It shouldn't be there. Here's a normal MRI of this area of your body. Do you see that gray area? That's not supposed to be there. But the MRI doesn't clear it up. It doesn't, it doesn't cure it. You don't go through an MRI and come out and go, okay, the scans fixed you there. No, it just shows you what's wrong. That's what the law does. It shows you. You fall short. This is how, this is how, far, sh- how far short you fall. Try saying that 10 times fast. This is how far short you fall compared to the standard of God. But what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by our flesh, our sinful flesh, our brokenness, our weakness, we can't do it. I'm really bad at instructions. Let me throw another analogy in there. When we get something in the mail that needs to be put together, I can get the instructions. And the instructions are only as good as the person who's able to follow instructions. I'm not good at following instructions. I read that and my mind goes blurry. Like my, It literally goes blurry. I have to ask Jess to read and go, can you just tell me like 
what do I do? Or, or just start putting it together and then I mess up and I say to Jess, somewhere along the line, I screwed this up. Can you read the instructions and see if you can fix it? That's, it's only as good as the person reading the instructions. The law is only as good as the flesh, the person, the human, trying to live up to that law and our flesh is too broken to do it. And so, let's go back to that one that we just said. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. So God did it. What did, what did God do? God, because we couldn't live up to his standard, God came down to our standard. He came down to our muddy puddle. And he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. He put on human flesh. He put on human flesh to live in our place, to obey the law perfectly in our place, which we couldn't do, and then to die in our place. And that's the next verse. So he condemned sin in the flesh. He became the sacrificial lamb who fulfilled the law perfectly in our place in order, look at that, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So Jesus was condemned in our place and that allows for the righteous requirement of the law to actually be met in us fully. So it's, it's, it allows for God to look at us who have been guilty, <laughs> okay, guilty of not measuring up to his standard. It allows for God to say, Chris, you measure up. How? How does that happen? Because Jesus, he took my report card full of F's and D's, right? And maybe an occasional D plus uh, here and there. But a report card full of F's and D's. He took it upon himself. He paid the sentence, right? He, he suffered. He absorbed. He took upon himself the, the wrath of God in my place. And then he offers his report card full of A's. So I get to grab hold of, when I trust in him, I grab hold of his report card full of A's. And I go into the principal's office in the name of Jesus. This is what it means. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we're coming to God in the name of, with, with Jesus' report card. I, I'm coming to you in Jesus' name with Jesus' report card full of A's. Not my own report card. I'm, I'm not coming to you standing on, bragging about, boasting in, leaning on, depending on my own report card. I'm coming to you with Jesus' report card full of ace. The righteous requirement of the law can be fully met in me because Jesus satisfied it on my behalf and I get to grab hold of it. I get to accept it. I get to receive it because Jesus took my condemnation. To, to use the prison analogy, Jesus put on my prison clothes while I was on death row and he went to the gallows in my place. Now, a big objection to this idea is people saying, well, that's not, that's not fair, that's not just, that's not right. How can someone else pay for my crimes, pay for your crimes? That's not fair, that's not just. I would agree with that if Jesus wasn't also the judge who is determining what justice is in the first place. Jesus is the judge who not only slams down the gavel and says, Chris, you are guilty and you stand condemned and here's your sentence, death row. But then he takes off his judge's robe and he puts on prison clothes and he goes to the gallows in my place. The judge becomes the executed because he lived up to the law fully in my place. He is the, f the ultimate epitome of justice himself. So he gets to do that. He can do that. And he gets to declare, it's paid for. Chris is paid for. I have a tattoo on my arm that says it's paid for, paid in full. Jesus declared from the cross, it is finished. It's paid for. Chris has been paid for. And that's why in Romans 8.1, Paul can declare, there is therefore, therefore, why? Because of what Jesus did, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because the judge who declared me guilty then paid my prison sentence. 
Yet notice, go back to that scripture for a moment. Yet notice, it's not for everyone. It's only for those in Christ Jesus. It does not say, there is therefore now no condemnation for everyone because of Christ Jesus. It doesn't say that. It says for those in Christ Jesus. Why in Christ Jesus? How do we get in Christ Jesus? Well, think about it. In order to go to God with Jesus' report card full of straight A's and not my own, I need to admit that my report card doesn't do it. I need to confess, I can't, I can't do it with my straight F's and maybe an occasional D. This doesn't measure up. I, I, I can't be freed from prison if I'm not willing to admit that I deserve to be there in the first place, right? You can't get paroled if you're not going to admit your guilt, right? I mean, that's what we see in the movies, right? When you're in prison, you have to be able to say, I'm guilty and I deserve to be here. I deserve to be on death row. I should, I should be condemned. I should be sentenced. Instead of trying to weasel out of it by doing the comparison game and saying, well, at least I didn't commit as many crimes as the guy in the next cell over. I didn't murder as many people as him. I shouldn't be here. No. No, we've got to be willing to admit our guilt. That's what confession is. God, I don't measure up. My report card doesn't do it. And this is why, by the way, it's not helpful to build up people's self-esteem when they are wrestling with what is very legitimate guilt. It's not helpful to come to me if I murdered somebody and say, well, Chris, you don't have to come clean. You don't have to turn yourself in. We all make mistakes. Don't worry. Just move on. I'm, I'm going to be eaten alive. If I have a conscience for the rest of my life, that doesn't, that doesn't free me. And if, my, and, and if I'm able to fight against that, then my conscience becomes seared and it ends up even worse. So you don't try to build up somebody's low self-esteem when they are wrestling with what is very legitimate guilt. It's not helpful. Trying to build up someone's low self-esteem without dealing with the sickness that is at the root, it's like trying to blow uh, air into a tire that has a hole in it and we're not patching it up. You might see, I mean, picture, you might see some movement in there, right? You're trying to blow up a baby pool, maybe, and there's a hole, and you see movement, you see the air moving, you go, oh, I think it's working, I think it's working, I think, I think it's working. As soon as you stop blowing, it's flat, because there's a hole there that needs to be plugged, and that's the same idea here. If we're not dealing with the root, our legitimate guilt, and we try to deny it, diminish it, build each other up with little shallow platitudes, it's actually not going to be helpful in the long run to tell a sinner that they're actually not a sinner, they're a good person who does a few occasional mistakes, is not actually going to help them in the long run. Because they know, their soul testifies, something's wrong here. The uh, 20th, not the 20th, the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said this. This is a quote, got to follow his old English here. Ho, oh, sir, surgeon, you are too delicate, delicate to tell the man he is ill. You hope to heal the sick without them knowing it. You therefore flatter them. And what happens? They laugh at you. They dance upon their own graves, and at last they die. Your delicacy is cruelty. Your flatteries are poisons. You are a murderer. Shall we keep men in a fool's paradise? Shall we lull them into soft slumber from which they will awaken hell? Are we to become helpers of their damnation by our smooth speeches? In the name of God, we will not. We must not. Again, the man who is on death row must not be told that he is fine and that don't worry, you're not as bad as the guy in the next cell. They're not going to put you to death. You're not even in prison. Don't worry. Ignore the prison bars. Just imagine yourself on an island somewhere and that's your reality. That's not, that's not going to help in the long run. Both of those men stand condemned. Both are currently in a state of separation from the life that God has for them by being in that prison cell. And both of them are awaiting a final execution that will uh, be a permanent separation from the life that God has for them. And that's the same thing for us spiritually when we cannot admit, when we do not confess, when we cannot see, I stand before a holy God 
condemned, guilty. I don't measure up. In fact, the cry of Romans 7.24 that we looked at earlier is actually the place to begin. Let's look at it again. Where He says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? This is where we need to start. When he asks, what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? It means you recognize, I can't do it. I can't be who I know I ought to be. Who will save me? Who will rescue me from this body, this flesh that's subjected to death, that's, that's subjected to a spiritual death, not just a physical death, but a spiritual death, a spiritual separation from a holy God? Who will save me? Who will rescue me? from this spiritual separation that will go on forever. Who will will rescue me? Well, he says in the next verse, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. All we have to do is admit I'm drowning. And God says, here is my son who gets in the water. He is your lifeboat, your life preserver. Grab hold of him. We just got to grab hold of him. That's what repentance is. Repentance is a turning from that which we were trusting in and trusting in Jesus. We confess, I can't do it. I'm drowning. I can't measure up. And we stop trusting in our own report card. We stop trusting in our own forms of justification. We stop trusting in the comparison game. We stop trusting in our own religious deeds. We stop saying, well, I grew up Catholic and I did all the sacraments, so I think I'm good. Or I grew up Baptist and I sang in the choir and I coached Little League, so I think I'm good. We stop trusting in that and we say, they ain't going to cut it. I'm going to grab hold of Jesus. I'm grabbing hold of his report card. And I'm coming to God in Jesus' name. Only Jesus' name. We stop trying to blow air into the tire that has a hole in it. And we say, God, I can't do it. I'm going to stop trying. Jesus, can you patch up the hole? Jesus, can you deal with the root of this issue? Can you, can you forgive me? And can I grab hold of your sacrifice and come under your blood? That's why we receive communion. We remember Jesus' blood, his body given. That's why we're going to do that tonight together. Because we're remembering Because of Jesus' blood, we can be guilty and yet be free of condemnation. Admit our guilt and repent and be free of condemnation because the judge took our place. Let's look at it again. Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You're guilty, but the prison doors are now open. They fly open. You're free to go. You're free to go, God says. You're free. You're free. And it's not it's not like you're free, but you're on probation. Let's just see how you do. It's not that. It's not that. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not a clean slate. Okay? Don't tell anybody that Christianity is a clean slate or it's a second chance or it's a do-over. It's not that. That's religious games. It's not that. Because if it's a clean slate, you're going to get that slate dirty within a month. Maybe less. Probably less. Probably in a day. It's dirty again. You're doomed. It's not a clean slate. It's not a doer. It's Jesus' report card. It's Jesus' record that we get forever. We get to carry it around. But Chris, I'm going to screw up. Yeah, and when you screw up, you get to be reminded, but, but I have Jesus' report card. God, I have Jesus' report card. It's not mine. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not building up a new report card here. I got Jesus' forever all the time. And it's more than that. The good news is more than that. It's not just that we are legally justified. It's not just that we are legally set free from prison and then God's like, all right, now get out of my sight. I know that I have to forgive you because you trusted in my son and all that stuff that I said, but just get out of my sight, right? It's not that. and, And if you've screwed up a lot since trusting in Jesus, you might be tempted to think, well, God, I know God forgives me and he has to let me into heaven because they're kind of the rules, I think, in the Bible, but he doesn't like me. And he doesn't want to answer my prayers. And he doesn't want to commune with me. And, and he probably isn't going to be happy that he has to let me into heaven. Kind of like some of us are with our family members that we have to invite to Christmas or Easter dinner. You know, it's kind of obligation. I always got to invite Cousin Eddie. Why do I have to invite Cousin Eddie? Well, Cousin Eddie comes every year. It's going to be awkward if I don't invite him. But I really don't want him here. I hope he can't come. It's not that. Some of us think that's what it's like for God to forgive us. But then we keep screwing up and God's like, jeez. Why is he here? Really? 
Really? Did somebody have to tell Chris about this good news so he trusted and gets forgiven? Because I don't, I don't want him representing me. It's not that. It's better than that. God doesn't just justify us. Jesus didn't just pay for our justification. He also paid for our adoption into God's family. See, the same judge that slammed down the gavel and says you're guilty and you're sentenced to death didn't just put on our prison clothes and go to the gallows for us so that we can go free. He then says, hey, I'm adopting you now into my family. I want you in my family. Chris, I want you not just to leave the prison and go out there and live on your own. I want you to leave the prison and come live in my mansion. Live in my family. Be my son. Be my daughter. I want to be your father. God, God the Father. Our Father. Jesus is like our older brother. He paid for our adoption. We're going to screw up. And God the Father is like, that's okay. Yeah, you're going to screw up. And you can admit your guilt. And you can be forgiven again. But you're still my son. Your status as my son will not change. Just like my daughter Tessa, right? Like I said in the beginning. Sweetie, you're guilty here. Just admit it. It doesn't change that you're our daughter. We love you. You're not going to get kicked out of the family. That's what it means to be adopted. And it gets better than that. Because God knows we're going to screw up. Because God knows that the old way that we used to respond to trials and respond to people. The old way that we used to get defensive. And we would look out for ourselves. And we would act like orphans. God knows we're going to continue to struggle there. He knows, in fact, that we're going to continue to condemn ourselves in our heads. And and beat ourselves up. And wonder, does God love me? Does God want me in here? In fact, somebody the other day I was talking to said it like this. They said, I, I, I used to go from self-righteousness to condem- self-condemnation, like just back and forth constantly. And I think that's kind of how we operate when we're operating out of our own, our, our old pride, our own sin nature, our old uh, religious spirit. We're self-righteous when we feel like we're doing good, and then we screw up and we condemn ourselves. And because God knows we're going to struggle with that, the news gets even better. Jesus the Son didn't just pay for us. God the Father did, uh, God the Father doesn't just adopt us. But God the Spirit comes to live inside us. Now this is crazy. This is crazy. God the Spirit, Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus, comes to live inside of us when we trust in Jesus. And that Spirit, listen, listen, listen. You know what he does? He reminds us, he testifies to our souls and reminds us that we have been adopted. In those moments when we need that reminding. Look at what it says a little bit later in that chapter in Romans 8. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, wondering, oh no, is God punishing me? Is God angry with me? Is God going to answer my prayer because I just screwed up? No, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Sonship is the status. Only sons in that time were the heirs and received the inheritance. And so what God is saying is that those of us, whether we're men or women, trust in Jesus, we get the status of sonship. Adoption is sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, or Dada, Dada Father. We get to see the God of the universe as our Dada. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. See that? The Spirit himself testifies, reminds us, Hey, Chris, I know you just screwed up. I know you feel like, man, you just keep messing up and you're making the wrong decisions here. I know you feel like you're not measuring up to God's standard. And you're not. And that's okay. Jesus paid for you. You are loved by the creator of the universe. You're in his family. He adopted you. In fact, the Spirit gets to remind us, Chris, you screw up more than you even know you screw up. You're worse than you even think you are. But God loves you far more than you can fathom. It's okay. Breathe, relax, and trust in His grace. And, and trust that He's going to He's going to keep showing you how to live because he wants you to enjoy life with him. So he's going to grow you. But you're his son. You're his daughter. This trial, this difficulty, he's not punishing you. You're his son. You've been adopted. You're not under condemnation. That's what the Spirit does. He reminds us that we are his child and we get to cry out dad that we get to have that spirit of adoption not everybody gets to have that spirit of adoption only those who have trusted in jesus a lot of people might call god their father but if they haven't 
come under Jesus, if they haven't come to God through Jesus in his name with his report card, they're not going to experience that same closeness with God as Father, that same tenderness. I know that sounds exclusive, but if Jesus paid for it, right, God's saying, no, no, you've got to come through my son. He paid for it. He's the only way. And then we get his spirit and we get that closeness. We get that tenderness where we go, wow, I really do feel like God is my father, like my dad, that closeness. So we have nothing to prove anymore. We are free from having to prove ourselves to God. There's such freedom there. Perfectionists need to be reminded of that. You, you, anybody, anybody a perfectionist in there? In there. In the chat room is what I'm thinking of. Or out there, Facebook world, YouTube world. You perfectionists. Perfectionists don't need to be told over and over again, oh, you're doing such a great job. You're, you've got all those plates spinning. You're juggling everything just, just perfectly. I don't know how you do it. They don't need to hear that. They want to hear that. They think they need to hear that because it makes them feel like, okay, good. It feeds that perfectionism. But what they really need to hear is, you're not doing that great. You're going to screw up. You're going to drop something here. You're going to drop a ball. And that's okay. That's okay. The pressure's off. What are you trying to prove? You don't have to prove yourself. Jesus proved himself on your behalf. You're coming to God in his name with his report card. Not your own. Not your own. Our oldest daughter, Kayla, she can be a little bit of a perfectionist. And when she feels like she messed up, she, she runs from us. She doesn't want to look at us in the eyes. doesn't make eye contact. And it's like, Kayla, get over here. Look at me. We love you no matter what. You're going to screw up. You screwed up today. You're going to screw up again tomorrow. You're going to screw up for the rest of your life. It's okay. We love you. It doesn't change anything. That's what a perfectionist needs to be reminded of. Not that they're doing perfectly so that they're, oh, the pressure's on. I got to keep this up. No. You're, you, you might even be able to keep those plates spinning, but your attitude is going to come out sideways on somebody. You're snapping at people and you don't even know it. You're not doing as great of a job as you think you are on your best day. And that's okay. The pressure's off. You're not under condemnation. It should change how we pray. It should change how we pray. When we screw up, we should be able to get back up and go, God, I don't deserve for you to answer this bold prayer I'm about to pray based on what I did yesterday. But I'm not praying based on my performance. I'm not coming to you in my name or my, my, with my report card in hand. I'm coming to you in Jesus' name with his report card. And because I'm coming to you with his report card, I'm still going to pray that you would bless my marriage, that you would heal this sickness in my body, that you would do a miracle in my family. I know I said something stupid to my spouse yesterday, and I probably deserve for them to leave me. But God, I'm going to pray for you to reconcile this thing, that you fix this thing, that you change this situation. That's what it means to believe that we are no longer under condemnation. It also means that we can, on one hand, not hyperanalyze our behavior, right? We're not going, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Because the pressure's off. But on the other hand, we can evaluate how we're doing and ask people to critique us and say, hey, where do you think I need to grow? Not in a self-absorbed, narcissistic performance-driven kind of way, but because, hey, uh, I, I got nothing to prove. Uh, I, I just want, I want God to grow me. I want him to teach me. I want the spirit that's in me to make me more like Jesus. So you see something in me? What do you see? Right? Uh, over the years, it's gotten easier for me to ask my wife, how do you think I need to grow as a husband? Part of that is because I realized I can't, the, 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 the more I try to be the perfect husband, the more it backfires. Because I'm like, why doesn't she appreciate how good I'm doing? And it's like, it just backfires and makes me worse. So now it's gotten easier for me to say, hey, babe, where do you think I need to grow? And when I hear it, it's like, yeah, I, I, there's probably more that she's not telling me. I'm probably doing worse. And, and that's okay. God, can you help me grow here? I got nothing to prove. I got nothing to prove. I just wanna, I want to live out of the joy that Jesus has purchased for me. See? And so living according to, and that's what we're going to talk about that in a, few, a future week. What does it mean to live according to the Spirit versus the flesh? We'll talk about that. Um, because Jesus does want us to grow, but it's not to prove ourselves. It's not to earn our worth before God. Um, just a few more minutes. Um, 
uh, we sent out a membership inventory to our church recently, and somebody, um, it was kind of just like, hey, how do you think you're doing, um, like, sp- spiritually, uh, some of the practices you might be engaging in, um, that kind of thing. And um, somebody asked a question, it was a super, super good question. They said, um, aren't these questions geared to make us focus on self instead of on Jesus and the gospel? And it was a great question, because that is a concern. That was a concern sending it out, that people will read it with a religious checklist sort of mindset. Oh, I'm doing bad in prayer, and I'm not reading the Bible, and I'm not really, you know, I'm not generous with my money, and I'm not this, and I'm not that, and, and or feel, I'm doing pretty good and feel prideful. Um, and that's one way to, to do it. And, and so that was a concern of mine. In fact, it's a concern anytime I try to encourage my kids to try hard at sports or try hard with their grades, or anytime we um, ask volunteers to serve in our kids' ministry. My concern is that people are going to think, oh, that's what it means to be a good person. To, to, to get good grades and to do good in sports and to volunteer at my church. That's what it means to be a good Christian. And it's not. But we should be able to do those things and evaluate how we're doing um, because those things should flow out of a thankful heart, a, a heart of gratitude and a heart of worship and awe, if you will, uh, for what Jesus has done for us. Okay, so give you an example. Um, money. We should be generous with our money. Not to check it off the list and pat ourselves on the back and say, well, I'm a generous person. God must be really happy with me now. No, we should be generous because of what Jesus has done for us. Because if we're adopted into God's family, then God, our Father, is someone we can trust. And so we can say, you know what? I believe that God's going to look out for me so I can be generous with my money. It's a symptom or a gauge of how much we really believe this good news. See? And that's where we can open ourselves up to constructive criticism. Our behaviors show how much we're really believing this good news. If we're not praying, for example, if we're like, nah, I don't really pray much, that doesn't mean God is kicking us out or saying, well, you don't measure up as a good Christian. It means there's something about our souls that doesn't really believe the good news of Jesus. Because Jesus died so we could be in God's family, so we could commune with him and talk to him. And he hear our prayers. And if there's something in our souls that makes us think, God doesn't answer my prayers. I'm pretty, I'm pretty discouraged about that. We're not really believing that. You know what I mean? So we're going to talk about that. We're going we're gonna to talk about how we reconcile the trials and the, the suffering that we experience with a God who uh, is not punishing us. How do we understand that? How are, how are we to wrap that around our minds? Um, but, but here's how I want to uh, end. I want to ask, first of all, first of all, uh, are you in Christ Jesus? Are you in Christ Jesus? If you're not, listen, listen, listen. If you're not in Christ Jesus, if you haven't admitted your guilt, I'm, on, I'm, I'm guilty, I'm on death row, I deserve to be here. If, if you haven't turned from trying to earn your way to God by, 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 by doing good deeds and being religious and going on social media to rant about that person over there or that party over there or that group over there to make you feel good about yourself, if you don't turn from that to grab hold of Jesus, then you're not un, under Christ Jesus, you're not in Christ Jesus, and you still stand condemned. I know, that's the bad news. I know, I know. You still stand condemned. And all God says is, stop. Stop. Admit it. Stop Stop trying to earn your way back. Stop grabbing on to all those useless, pathetic ways of justifying yourself and just grab hold of my son's sacrifice. Just trust in him. Grab hold of my son. He died for you. He went to the gallows for you. For you. And I want you in my family. And if you don't accept him, you're not in my family. I want you in it. That's what God's saying to you. That's what God's saying to you. So if that's you today, here's my prayer. My prayer that God's spirit would open your eyes to see Jesus for who he is, the one who went to the gallows for you, who paid for your adoption, that you would trust in him today. There's no magic prayer to pray. You say, Jesus, I believe that. I'm trusting you. I'm not going to trust in myself anymore. And I would love to be able to talk to you about that. If you click on our, if you're watching live, you click on our Get Connected forum there. I'll follow up with you tomorrow, Monday. If you're watching Facebook or YouTube, just info at truelifenj.com. I'll follow up with you tomorrow. Next step would be to get baptized. If you haven't been baptized, baptism is a celebration. Jesus paid for me. I believe Jesus died for me. He paid for me. Now, a lot of people say that they trust in Jesus, but they don't feel ready for baptism. You know what that shows? That they think it's about probation. 
I trust in Jesus. I have a clean slate, but now I got to see how well I do. And if I do good for a year or two, then I can get baptized and show that, oh, I'm really ready. It's not graduation from college. It's being born. Your baptism is a celebration that you've been born spiritually anew. You don't wait for a baby to walk or crawl or talk before you celebrate that they're born. You have a party. You celebrate it. That's what baptism is. If you're ready to trust in Jesus as your Savior, baptism is the next step. That's all. And that's next week. Love to have you join us for that. Now, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian and you profess to have trusted in Jesus as your Savior, here's my question for you. And I want you to think about this. And and Justin and Sarah Ann are going to be up in a moment to talk to you about this uh, and process this with you. But here's the question. In what ways do you live as if you're still under condemnation? You say you're not. You sing songs like you're not. You quote scriptures, you have the Bible verses, you've got the coffee mugs, but you still live, if you're honest with yourself, you still live as if you're under condemnation sometimes. You still think like you're under condemnation. You still act like it. You still, you still have the attitude like it. You still respond to difficulties like you're under condemnation. Hmm? In what way specifically? Can you admit it? Can you talk about it? I would encourage you in the next minute or two as we're transitioning here and Justin and Sarah Ann are coming back up, uh, if you've got something, you can share it in the chat section. You can post it there. If you're watching through our website, we'd love to, we'd love to uh, include what you share as part of the discussion today. Um, let me just close in prayer. Jesus, those who are still under condemnation, who haven't trusted in you, would you get a hold of them? Those who are in you, and are no longer under condemnation, would you help us to live like that, feel that? Um, but first, would you show us the ways that we don't feel that, that we don't live like that? Can you help us identify specific ways? Maybe it's that we're unable to pray after we know that we messed up. Maybe it's comparing ourselves to how other people are doing. Maybe we go to bed at night thinking, wondering, did I justify my existence today? Help us to identify that because that's an area where I believe you want to work and free us. It's in your name. Amen.